0: would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, that's in the New Testament. If you'd like to look in the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage today on page 977. We're coming to the end of this first section of this letter that Paul wrote to these Christians in Ephesus in the first century. And as he comes to the end of this first section of the letter, he is moved to pray for these people that he's been writing these wonderful, glorious truths to. We're going to be looking at this prayer that he gives to the Lord for them. It's chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you chapter 3 of Ephesians 14 down through verse 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would, through the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Help us, Father, to see the love of Christ for us. May it be something that we not only understand, but that we truly believe in our heart of hearts. And as a result, would you cause us to be changed, transformed, that we might love you and love our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. And there are are probably several reasons for that. Uh, The first one is because I don't think they work very well. And just looking at some of your faces, I can tell you don't think that they work very well either. But the second reason, and the most important reason why I don't like New Year's resolutions, is because the problem that they cause at the gym that I go to. (laughs) From January to about mid-February, the New Year's resolutions folks show up in droves. Now, on the one hand... I'm actually thankful and encouraged. It's great that people are trying to get healthy. They're, they're trying to change some lifestyle things. They're, they're going to work out. They're trying to lose weight. Whatever it might be, it's wonderful that they're doing that. But it causes some problems for us regulars at the gym. Uh, my normal parking spot is no longer available usually when I get there in the late afternoons. The locker rooms are always more uh, convoluted and crowded. And I've been finding that I have to wait to get onto the cardio machines or the weightlifting machines that I normally use. And you can tell who the newcomers are and who the oldcomers are because the newcomers don't really know the rules very well, both the stated rules and the unstated rules of how you're supposed to conduct yourself at the gym. And it's interesting because if you walk around the gym, you can tell who the regulars are, because we all walk around with kind of a forlornness on our face as we are waiting out until the middle of February. And we can even encourage one another sometimes by saying, just hold on until the middle of February, because we know, if we do, the New Year's resolutions crowd will thin significantly. That's the stereotype about New Year's resolutions, right? That we don't keep them very long. We make an effort, we try, we do some things, we make some changes, but over a course of time, we don't persevere. We don't make it through. Now, why is that the case? There are probably several reasons, but one core reason for why we don't keep New Year's resolutions very well is because at the very core of it, we do not have the strength and the power To persevere when things get difficult. We tend to give up. We tend to give in. We tend to go back and revert to our old bad habits. Now, before you start to feel smug about those people out there that don't keep New Year's resolutions very well, let me just suggest to you that every single one of us in this room that are seeking to live the Christian life understand something of that lack of power. Because we, as God's people, often don't have the strength and the power that we need in order to fight and to lean against our sin and our temptations. We lack the strength and the power that we need that in the midst of those times of great temptation to doubt the goodness and faithfulness and love of God, we give in and truly doubt Or in those moments when the circumstances of our lives seem overwhelming and we are prone to be devastated and despair and even blame God. We lack the strength and the power that we need in order to fight against our temptation and lean against our sin and not be destroyed by the circumstances of our lives. But what if I told you that indeed there is a power A real power, not something that we just confess with our lips, something that is in the clouds, but a real experiential power that enables us to persevere, to fight against our temptations, to lean against our sins. There is such a power. It's what Paul is talking about here in these verses, in verses 14 through 21. He's talking about a power and he's not talking about something that's a secret or some kind of hidden trick or some secret skill or knowledge. He's talking very plainly about this power and it is the power of love. We don't mean some kind of simply sentimental, emotional, ooey-gooey love. Paul here is referring to... The knowledge and the real experience of the love of Jesus for us. That that love that Christ has for us as his people fills us with a true and real power. A power to believe the amazing truth of the gospel of grace. And a power to live a God-honoring, God-loving, God-obedient, God-joyful, obedient life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous 20th 20th century preacher and pastor, preached at least 17 sermons on these verses. Today, in just one sermon, we're going to try to get an overview of what Paul is saying. And I want us to see several things from this passage. First of all, what Paul wants. This passionate request that he makes to God on behalf of the Ephesian Christians. Secondly, why Paul wants it. A confusing, somewhat confusing and certainly encouraging prayer that he offers. And lastly, how can we get what Paul prays for? So first of all, what does Paul want? What is the passionate request that he makes to God on behalf of the Ephesian Christians you can see it in verses 14 through 16 Paul says for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being This is the second time that Paul has broken into prayer for the Ephesian Christians. And now as he comes to the end of this section, this first section of his letter, this wonderful treatise of the glorious truth of what is is true for God's people. And before he moves into the practical consideration of what that means for us and how we live, he stops and he's moved to pray. And what is it that he prays? It's verse 16. That according to the riches of the Father's glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. What Paul is praying for these people is that they would be strengthened with power. Strengthened with power. That word power is the word in Greek dunamis. It's the Greek word that we get our English word dynamite from. Do you see what Paul is praying for these people? That they would be strengthened with an explosive power. A power that when it is affected, that when it goes into effect, it causes things to change. That's what he's praying for, these people. And notice how he sees that happening in their lives. He says at the beginning of verse 16, According to the riches of the Father's glory... And then later in verse 16, through his spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying, that the, the way that this comes about, how this comes about, is out of or from the riches of the Father's glory and through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that, he goes on to say in verse 17, Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Paul is being intentionally Trinitarian in what he is saying. Paul is praying for the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to fill us with a strength and power he couldn't be more clear that the way that this happens is through the work of god it's not something that we create it's not something that we conjure up within ourselves it is a work of god in us and through us and notice what he says about where this takes place as well in verse 16 in your inner being he says verse 17 in your hearts If you know much about the Bible, you know that when it speaks about inner being or the heart, it's speaking about the very core of our being. The Puritans used to refer to it as the seat of our affections. It is that motivational structure of everything of who we are and how we live our lives. If you go see a physical therapist, if you go see an occupational therapist, if you go see an athletic trainer at the gym and you, you are seeking to become stronger, uh, physically stronger, one of the things that they're no doubt going to work with you in is to strengthen your core muscles. They're going to make you do planks and various things like that. Why? Because they understand the physiology of our bodies, that if the muscles that we can't see very well, the ones that are deep inside of us, if we strengthen those, then the entirety of our bodies will be strengthened. But when those core muscles are are weak, we'll have back problems and leg problems and neck problems. And, And there's an analogy here of what Paul is saying. He is praying for these Ephesian Christians that the core muscles, spiritual muscles of their whole being would be strengthened with power. With dynamite power so that they can live for the Lord and believe in the gospel. And notice about what he says here about when he wants this prayer to be effected in their lives. It doesn't really say anything in the text itself about a timeline that is in Paul's mind. But Paul does show us something about the urgency and the importance that this is to him. He shows us this deep passion that he has in his request for the Ephesian Christians. You can see it in verses 14 and 15. He says to them, I bow my knees before the Father. Now when we hear that, we kind of read over it quickly and it doesn't grab us as much. But the readers, when they heard Paul say, I am praying to the Father on your behalf that you would be strengthened with power. And I am so moved to do this that I am bowing on my knees to do it. They would have said, whoa! The proper and usual posture of a a Jewish man to pray was not to bow, but to stand. When someone bowed in that culture, it was to express a particular earnestness, a a particular importance. So what Paul is saying here is that this is something that is so so important to him. He, He is being earnest before his father and it is an urgent prayer request. It is something that he desires for God to do now in the lives of these people. This is what Paul wants. That according to the riches of his father's glory... His Father would grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So why does Paul want that? There's both something confusing and very encouraging about Paul's prayer here. What's confusing about this prayer? There are several things that Paul mentions in this prayer that he's praying for to be true for these Ephesian Christians. Several things that he wants them uh, to believe. Several things that he wants to be true of them. But the things that he's praying that he wants to be true of them are things that Paul has already said are true of every Christian. There are things that are true at the moment that someone becomes a Christian. The moment of their conversion. The moment that a heart has been changed from rock to flesh and puts faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look at some of the things that he's praying here. He prays in the beginning of verse uh, 17 that Christ would dwell in their hearts. But he's already told them at the end of chapter 2 in verse 22 that in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They are already a dwelling place of God. We know that from 1 John chapter 4, where John tells us, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. The moment that we become a Christian, the moment of our conversion, Christ dwells in our hearts. And he also goes on and says at the beginning of verse 19, another part of his prayer, is that they would know the love of Christ. But we know from 1 John 3 and 4, that all Christians in some way on some level, when they are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have some kind of understanding and knowledge of Christ's love for them. That happens at their conversion. And again, at the end of verse 19, he talks about how he wants them to be filled with the fullness of God. But already earlier at the end of chapter 2 in verses 22 and 23, he said, And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul would also go on in Colossians chapter 2 to say, For in Christ, if you are in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled in him. All of these things that Paul is praying that would be true of the Ephesians are things that are already true of every Christian, including these Christians in Ephesus. So why is Paul praying these things to be true of them? It's because Paul knows that there's a difference between knowing these things, saying that we believe these things, and these things being so real to us So gripping our hearts that our lives are actually transformed. There's a sense in which every single one of us in Christ this morning are phony Christians. That every single one of us in this room this morning are hollow and fake. Now why can I say that? It's because every single one of us knows the experience of saying that we believe these things and actually believing these things. And then when the moment comes when we are tempted to give in to our sin rather than what we believe causing us to faithfully follow the Lord and believe His promises, we give in again and again and again. What we say we believe and what we understand doesn't grip our hearts such that our lives are transformed. Blaise Blaise Pascal was... A 17th century French mathematician, physicist, as well as a Christian, one who wrote many wonderful things and difficult to understand things as well. When he died in 1662, he found they found in his jacket that he wore most often a diary entry that had been sewn into one of the pockets of his of his coat. And the diary entry in his coat referenced an event that had taken place a decade earlier that truly changed him. Here's a portion of that diary entry The year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude. Certitude. Feeling. Joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. My God and your God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, complete submission to Jesus and to my director. Eternally in my joy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Those are not things that Pascal didn't already know. He had grown up being taught those very truths. But on that night... The Spirit of God was at work in his heart and his mind so that the things that he believed were true became real to him in his heart of hearts. That's what Paul is praying for here for the Ephesian Christians. I don't think that we necessarily have to be able to point to some dramatic event in our lives like Pascal experienced. But what we know is true has to become real for us in an experiential way more than just our academic knowledge of it. That's what Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and for us. That in our inner beings, in our heart of hearts, we would not only understand and believe the love of Jesus for us, but we would be so deeply moved and trust Him because of it that our lives would be changed. That we would have the power to overcome temptation. That we would have the power to trust Him in the midst of our times of doubting. That we would have power to persevere in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. And that's when we start to see these wonderful, encouraging things that Paul prays here. This power that he talks about was a power that would enable them to be changed, for their, for their lives to be transformed, how they live their lives out to be different. Look at what he prays at the beginning of verse 17. He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts. That word that Paul uses there, dwell, was very Specifically chosen. Paul could have picked a number of different words to to get that sense there. but But the word that he picked there to mean dwell has the sense of permanency. He's talking about a home, not a hotel. And do you see what he's saying? He is praying for them to have a sense that Jesus Christ is dwelling in their hearts through faith. Why? Because if we have a sense that Christ is dwelling in our midst... It will give us strength and power to fight against our sin and temptation. Think about the many the many times that we're tempted. Perhaps tempted to disobey your parents. Or perhaps tempted to be unfaithful to your spouse. Or perhaps tempted to lie at work to further your career. What if in every single one of those moments, we were filled with... With an understanding of the presence of Jesus Christ in that midst, in the midst of us. And the moment when we are tempted to sin and to give in, that Christ is with us. Paul says that would help us, that sense of Christ dwelling in us and our understanding of that would give us a sense of power and strength to lean and to fight against our sin. He prays at the end of verse 19 that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot of Differing opinions about this very difficult Greek phrase that Paul uses here about being filled with all the fullness of God. But basically, I think it boils down to this being some form of an idiom, meaning a daily growing more and more in our holiness, in our Christ likeness, in our maturity in the faith. He wants them to have power that their lives might be filled more and more with Christ likeness. And again, at the end of verse 17, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Part of his prayer is that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Talking about their love, their love for God and their love for their neighbors, that their lives would be anchored in demonstrating a love for God and for others. Paul uses two different pictures or metaphors to kind of help us understand that. He first talks about the fact that he, he wants us to have a, 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 a love that is, that is rooted. It's an agricultural phrase, an agricultural term. It's the idea of a plant having its roots deep into the soil so that it is nourished, so that it is stable. And then he moves on to more of, a, uh, of an architectural uh, uh, word or phrase here. Not only that we would be rooted in love, but that we would be grounded or have a foundation in love. The idea of a building's foundations going deep into the ground, providing stability for that building. And that's his prayer for the Ephesian Christians and for us, is that we would be rooted and grounded in love. He's talking about a life that is transformed, whose soil, whose foundation is a loving obedience to the Lord and to a service to service to our neighbors. That's part of the encouragement here is Paul's praying for the Ephesians and for us, that we would have power to actually live differently. Transformed lives Overcoming our temptations and not being driven and controlled by the circumstances of our lives. But the other aspect that is so encouraging here about what Paul says. Is not just the power that they would have to live. But the power that they would have to understand and believe the gospel. That's what he says in verses 18 and 19. That they would have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's prayer is that they would have power to understand the extent of Christ's love for them. How broad, how wide is Christ's love for us? The Bible tells us that though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. That your sins will be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ as far as the east is from the west. Or another aspect of the breadth of Christ's love for us is simply to think about the fact that in heaven all nationalities will be represented, Jew and Gentile. How long is Christ's love for his people? The Bible tells us that Christ's love for His people stretches into eternity past. That before before creation began, you were on Christ's heart and will be for eternity future. How high is Christ's love for us? It is high enough to get us securely and certainly into heaven. How deep is Christ's love for us? It's deep enough to reach even the most depraved sinner. These words of Paul remind us of what he said to the Romans in Romans chapter eight. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything. in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And my question for you this morning and my question for me is has that gripped our hearts? I don't mean do you believe it and can you articulate it and do you understand it? But has it gripped you in your heart of hearts in an experiential way such that your lives are changed and you are empowered to believe the gospel in those moments when you're tempted not to? This is what Paul's praying for the Ephesian Christians and for us as well. So the question is, well, how do we get what Paul's praying for? How do we get this prayer to be real in our own lives? I've got four things for you as we leave this morning. The first way that we can get what Paul is praying for is by humble, persistent, and expectant prayer by us. Paul is praying passionately and pastorally for these people that he cares deeply for. But Paul's prayer also serves as a model for us this morning, it's an encouragement. For us to be praying these very things for ourselves and for one another. Remember what we read in 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence that we have toward Jesus that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And we know, if we know, that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What a wonderful promise that as we come to the Lord in prayer and as we pray that which is according to the will of God, he not only hears us, but he gives us what we're requesting. Now, of course, the question is, well, how do we know what God's will is? Well, with regard to this, I can tell you we know exactly what God's will is because it's in God's word as we would pray verses 14 through 21 for ourselves and for one another, we are praying God's revealed will for His people. And if we need even even more encouragement... In motivation to help us to pray these things. We come to verse 20 and we hear this wonderful encouragement. Paul says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. Do you see this incredible motivation to get on our knees and to pray these things for ourselves and for one another? Paul says that God hears us and he gives us that which we ask for. But it, it, that's not all. He gives us not only what we ask for, but also beyond what we can even ask or think. And it's even more than that. It's not just more than we ask or think. It's abundantly more, he says. And it's even more than that. It's not just abundantly more than we ask or think. It is far more abundantly than we could ask or think. And it's all because of the power of God that is at work within us. How that should motivate us to be people of prayer, to pray these things for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. A second thing that helps us to get what Paul's praying for in our own lives is that we have to wrestle with ourselves. Now, where did I get that from the text? If you look back at verse 18, he says that you may have strength to comprehend the extent of Christ's love for you. It's that word comprehend. It's really... It's, a, it's an intriguing word. Of all the words that Paul could have used to come up with some kind of sense of helping us to understand the extent of Christ's love, he uses the word katalambano. That word in the Greek literally means to overtake or to apprehend or to overcome by force. And it has this sense of... Of running after someone, grabbing them, and wrestling to them to the ground and overcoming them. Now Paul's not talking in this passage here about us doing that with God. He's talking about us doing that with ourselves. That we would have the power of God so that we internally would be able to comprehend the love of Christ That we would wrestle with ourselves. That in those moments when we are tempted to give in to our our sin. Those moments when we are tempted to give in to those besetting sins that seem so precious to us at times. Those moments when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. Those moments when we are tempted to despair because of the circumstances of our life. We would wrestle with ourselves in our hearts and our minds. That we would wrestle these truths into our hearts and our minds. Now, how do we do that? Psalm 19 and 119 speak about God's Word and how powerful God's Word is for us. And in in both of those psalms, the psalmist mentions the idea of meditating on God's Word. And that's different than reading it. It's one thing to read God's Word. It's another thing to meditate on. And I think what Paul is referring to here is this idea of meditation that, that we... That we chew on God's word, that we take it in, that we seek to understand it, that we not simply just read it and then close our Bibles, but that it, that it soak into our, our heart of hearts, into our inner beings. That necessitates that we read it for sure, but our reading it isn't the end of it, it's simply the beginning of it. In those moments of our doubts and temptations and sins, that we would confront ourselves, wrestle with ourselves with the reality of Christ's love for us. A third way that we can get this prayer into our own lives is something that he says in verse 18, that we need the help of one another. It's easy to read past it. It's a little phrase that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints, Paul says. In other words, Paul's saying that all of these things that he's praying... For these Christians are not things that are supposed to be for them just simply in isolation from everybody else. That it is as they come together as God's people that they would wrestle together these truths into their hearts and minds. And so what that means for us is that we need one another. That we need the fellowship and the community of God's people because we're not meant, we're not created to be able to do all of this on our own. That we ought to be reading good books together and discussing them. That we ought to be reading the good book together and discussing it. That we ought to be praying together. That we ought to be eating together. That we ought to be fellowshipping together. That we ought to be worshipping together. And that as we do that we point one another to the love of Christ over and over and over again. And then lastly. That our lives would be filled... With a sense of giving God to glory in everything that we do. That's how Paul ends. As he comes to the end of this wonderful glorious section of Ephesians. He ends by saying to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As Paul comes to the end of this section as he's moved. From what is true to what he's going to be talking about in the coming weeks. About what is now, how, what is, how we're supposed to be living as a result of that. He pauses not only to pray, but to, to break out into doxology to praise God. And that's important for us too. That as we reflect on the wonderful deep truth and doctrine of Ephesians 1-3. through 3, All the ways that God is at work in us. That we too would be moved as God's people to give him praise and glory. So that as individuals and as families and as together as God's people, we would say to God, the father and Jesus, the son and the Holy Spirit be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it's so hard for us as we go through our daily lives to exhibit the kinds of things that Paul is praying for, for these Ephesian Christians and for us. We see so many ways that we lack the power that he's praying for. So we pray, Father, through the work of your Spirit in our inner beings, in our heart of hearts, we pray for the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. To cause us to be able to understand the extent of Jesus' love for us. We pray, Father, that that would grip our hearts. That it would be real to us. And as a result, that you would cause us to believe and to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Been around Trinity for a number of years, or maybe even more recently in the last few months or even weeks. Uh, no matter how long you've been around here, you probably have at some point thought and wondered uh, why it is that we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper each Sunday at the end of our worship service. Uh, or maybe you even were like myself, grew up in a church where it was celebrated uh, maybe quarterly or even uh, fewer times. Uh, so anyway, uh, but what I, one reason I do believe that we do this every week is because uh, we, as Pastor Chris mentioned in the sermon this morning, uh, go out... Uh, in the midst of our lives, in the weeks, and and we forget uh, what is true. We forget uh, God's love for us, the extent of God's love for us. uh, And so we were reminded of that this morning. Uh, And so uh, that's Paul's prayer in, in this letter to the Ephesians. It's our prayer too this morning that we might be reminded of Christ's love for us, the length and breadth and depth. Of, of God's love for us through Jesus. And so that's what we come to celebrate this morning as we come to the table, as we come to the Lord's Supper. We come to celebrate that ultimate demonstration of God's love to us uh, as Christ went to the cross will, willingly and died on uh, for our sins. Uh, and those so those who believe in Jesus have forgiveness. They have life. And so this is a visible picture, a visible representation of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we come to the table this morning, our prayer is that we, as we meditate on this truth that that Christ died for us and and the extent of his love for us, uh, that by the power of the Spirit we might uh, believe and know of God's grace and, and, and in turn go out and live accordingly to what is true about us. And that we might see God's love for us through Jesus. This table is for all those who... Uh, believe and trust in Jesus, who are members in good standing at a church that preaches and proclaims the gospel, who know the extent of God's love for us, the length and breadth and depth of His love for us through Jesus Christ. And so if that describes you this morning, then we invite you to come and take uh, and eat and drink of these elements, that your faith might be encouraged, that you might be strengthened as you go out from here this this day. Let me pray for us now. Lord, as we come before your table this morning, we uh, pray that you would remind us of your love for us. The extent of your love for us and what you did on our behalf. The length and the breadth and the depth of your love for us through Jesus Christ. Uh, That you would strengthen and encourage our faith as we take of this meal and bless these elements now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.